Hello, my name's Charlotte Watts. This podcast was recorded at one of my live events, so either at a workshop, retreat or course that I was running. You can see details of these at my website, charlottewattshealth.com or join my Facebook group, Charlotte Watts Calm. I hope it's helpful to you. Okay, so the question is, why might people tend to crave, desire, go for, take comfort from foods that reinforce patterns that are already there? Or pathological patterns. Pathological patterns, so go for things that might not suit them. Mm. So there's several things in that. One is that we are driven to go towards things that not because of a health reasoning but because of some kind of instantaneous comfort or some sense of self-medication. So we're unbelievable, humans are unbelievably good at self-medicating. That is to either make ourselves feel better in the immediate instance, so what we might call instant gratification or quick fix, uh, in order to go on, and also so that we have a sense of normalisation. So it's one of the key facets of uh, addicting patterns. One of the, there's, there's, however you look at it, there's lots of different ways of looking at something that is addicting. A few of those, who, however you look at this, and I kind of, I tend to be a very keen Gabba Mate fan. If any of you know him, he's who, the bloke who wrote um, When the Body Says No. Um, he's a Canadian doctor. He specialises in trauma um, he wrote several books which are incredible. One is about addiction called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, which that's a, a realm within the Buddhist cycle, and it's kind of the realm of addiction within the Buddhist cycle. It's kind of categorised by lots of very grey, thin people just grasping, kind of, where, more, more, more. So that is an account of when he was um, running a kind of what they call a drug hotel in Canada. Uh, I think it was Vancouver. So he had a, 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 like a hospital hotel full of addicts and he was their physician and it really comes out of that. So he's he's a family of an Auschwitz survivor. He has ADHD. He's also written a book about ADHD and he's very, very big on trauma and how that ripples through into disease states, how we need compassion around that. But also he's a big, big, big proponent of what now these days gets called psychoneuroimmunology, so PNI. It also gets called psychoneuroendoimmunology, just to show that the, the endocrine system's in there as well, and basically everything. And it's basically a kind of new scientific terminology for mind-body medicine. Um, very well-researched. For those of you who were on the walk yesterday when we were going through the woods, the stuff we were talking about, about needing to be out in nature and needing to have like scratches, needing to have exposure on the periphery, um, is how we're designed. If we don't have that, the immune system tends to go inward um, rather than out to the be directed out to the periphery as it's designed to do. Um, so a lot of the self-medicating that we, that we do is around the fact that we are not living as designed with that kind of stuff. So this is where these things kind of become pathological because we're self-medicating to compensate for some a need that is not being met. And also, so 
full circle coming back around there is I like Gabba Mate's kind of criteria for uh, addiction, which are not that different to other people's, but um, one huge one of them is normalization. So you have that substance to normalize. So if your body is used to having coffee to feel normal in the morning, then your normal is with the substance. Take the substance away and you're not operating on normal anymore. So, you know, it's why, for instance, alcoholics need to taper. To, for an alcoholic to come off alcohol immediately is re-traumatizing. So uh, intelligently you come off alcohol bit by bit by bit by bit by bit and you let neurochemistry create its new normal bit by bit by bit. And one of the things that, for instance, in this instance, alcohol does is it gives a, um, a raise of the... Uh, neurotransmitter GABA, gamma amino butyric acid, which is, um, it stills the mind. So it's the neurotransmitter that's been shown to be a lot of research around meditation, mindfulness, yoga on raising GABA. It's one of the things that these practices do is that they raise levels in the body of this neurotransmitter, this brain chemical and body and gut chemical that soothes, stills the brain, stills the mind. So it is the second thread sutra in yoga is that yoga stills the mind that is the aim of yoga uh, and one of the, that's what gamma gabba does as a neurotransmitter it stills the mind shuts off rumination constant brain chatter so alcohol also does that it raises gabba but temporarily so it gives you a huge surge of gabba first it's one of the reasons that people you know feel believe behave around alcohol that it's relaxing People get home from work, they have a glass of wine to relax themselves. But ultimately what it does is <clears throat> stops us picking up and utilising our own GABA. It de desensitises our receptor sites uh, and interferes with our own natural production. So we become reliant on the alcohol for the self-soothing. So that's a kind of an addicting pathway with that. One of the things that does is really interfere with REM sleep. So we, yes, alcohol might get us to sleep, but it really interferes with quality of sleep. So that's kind of watching it. And that's a kind of one of the kind of self-medicating pathological cycles around that. The other thing that um, addicting substances tend to do is create cycles of, I mean, it's, again, this is in the criteria of, of addiction, is they you might have periods of binging and withdrawal and times when, particularly if you've come off something without supporting the biochemistry behind it, then you might be able to stay away from it for, say, three, four days, but then you have a almost like a rebound into it. So often people around food, around sugar, for instance, will find that, they, you know, they, they, by willpower, I will not have sugar for three, four days, but then the kind of disorder around serotonin, for instance, is another neurotransmitter with that means that you suddenly get that you can't quite regulate your own and there's an agitation of brain chemistry that sends you back towards quite a large surge of it. So serotonin, uh, so say, say for instance, in that it might be like a, a big binge on, a ref on refined carbohydrates, bowls of pasta, bowls of potatoes, something to give a sudden surge of serotonin again for that self-medication. The other reason that people can be drawn to things that they self-medicate with is that they might have like a very mild intolerance or an intolerance to it. So when, when we eat something that we're intolerant to, not 
allergic, it's a different immune reaction, is that you get a bit of a shot of dopamine. Um, and we get a shot of dopamine for quite a lot of things. We get, we get a shot of this happy neurotransmitter. So it's, it's reward, mood, motivation. Uh, it keeps us going. When we become low in serotonin, we can become listless. We don't care. doesn't feel like what's the point. Uh, it's very caught up in mood cycles and even depressive cycles. We are naturally rewarded by doing stuff that is propagation of the species, keeping us going. So laughter, community, social engagement, all the stuff that we've been doing in groups this week is amazing for our dopamine levels. And actually, that's the stuff that means we tend to need less of the things that give us a, a quick fix, happy from, out the, from, from sources other than those deep resources. So rather than having those resources within or those resources from community, if those aren't easily available to us, and that can be that often people with um, low dopamine levels have lost the joy, so, you know, um, then they turn to other things that might give a shot of dopamine. And those tend to be things that are we become addicted to. So, yes, we're given a shot of dopamine for anything that propagates the species. So laughing, social cohesion, fun, groups, sports, group activities, healthy relationships. Well, healthy relationships with food, although that's, you know, <laughs> to be defined. Uh, healthy sexual relationships, touch, hug. Again, you know. Long, long conversation in all of those. But the stuff that makes us feel like the species is going forward, because that's all survival really cares on is the species going forward. And that's what, you know, we're predicated on in terms of driver. Um, it's not, is that food there healthy or unhealthy? But, you know, are we just keeping things going, paying it forward, as it were? So sugar's a really interesting one um, for dopamine because it's, there's a massive continual discussion really about whether sugar is addictive or not there was research done by a scientist called bart hobel who died a couple of years ago but before he died he did like 15 years worth of research him and his team on offering rats a choice of sugar or cocaine and <laughs> for 15 years those rats chose the sugar uh, in many different ways but sugar water won out over cocaine but very much so. And then sweeteners also won out over cocaine because you get the sense that you've had the sugar. The same things in the brain light up, but they have very confusing effects metabolically in terms of the liver, in terms of the gut. They're, they're incredibly confusing substances for the body. Um, so whether you, you know, wherever you fall on the whether, you know, sugar is addictive or not. Personally, I've been a hardcore sugar addict and I think the personal test there is what happens when you take it away because I often hear people say well I'm not addicted to sugar and say well how often do you have it well I have a biscuit every afternoon but I don't really need it so well have you tried taking it away no <laughs> would you like me to take it away no <laughs> could you <do> <laughs> Yeah, I kill you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And there's a possessive around it. My biscuit. My biscuit. Uh, no. So it doesn't really matter how we're defining it or not. It's a personal relationship and a personal understanding of those words. When I speak to people who have, you know, 
I always say, what's your relationship with sugar? It's an open question. So people can describe it. And I want to hear it, just whether it's described in emotive, you know, the level of emotive language it's described in. Because the more emotive the language is, the more that there's a, a possessive quality around something. And then actually, you know, the, the, the unravelling of it is, is around comfort and reward and not simply around, you know, do I have a biochemical need for this thing at this time? It's just not that you know, dry, as it were. I mentioned before about the, the dopamine hit in response to things that we're mildly intolerant to. And that's a really important survival mechanism. In the wild, we would be eating a much higher variety of things, things that are not domesticated, so they haven't been bred to have much higher starch and sugar levels. You get what you can. You would eat with the seasons. So your immune system would be presented with a food for a certain amount of time, three months at the very most, the very most. You know, what does your average plant kind of give up its stuff for that's edible? It's, it's not long. And you'd only get that once a year. So the likelihood of you actually becoming intolerant to something was incredibly low. Now we eat things all year round and our immune system is presented to it all year round. And it's presented to it within the context of psychosocial stress. So it's presented in this context that... The healing of our gut, which needs to be re-healing, re-cycling uh, its cells on the cell wall every four days. And stress gets in the way of that. And people chew less because they eat less mindfully. They're in, the, in a hurry. They often just they eat because they want to numb and self-medicate. Add all of that in and the likelihood for food intolerance goes right up. So the more we can vary food, the better. But people often just have like at least the same breakfast day in, day out. So what happens if we have this kind of low level of intolerance or a higher level is that we get a dopamine hit when we have it. Because there's, particularly with the IgG antibodies that are produced in response to an intolerance, it's seen by the body that this it's not really that dangerous. It's not something we're going to die from, but we need to keep going. So the dopamine kind of gives us a, a hit to keep going. That's the kind of the theory around all of that. So just to be clear there, that intolerant reaction, the IgG antibody reaction, is different to the IgE antibody reaction, which is the reaction of allergy. So that is an immediate response. It doesn't change in severity and you only have to have a tiny amount of the food to get that sudden response. Whereas an intolerance can change, take out the food and do the required gut support and things can change. And also the response can happen minutes to days after eating a food and it really can change in severity in terms of stress, in terms of how you're eating, what you're eating it with, the amount you have. Whole, whole bunch of stuff that's why they're so difficult to to pinpoint so that is the long-winded answer to your question 